What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday is the only show where every week I focus on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This week is no different. We're going to be talking about a very controversial topic. We're going to be talking about the use of the death penalty, capital punishment. We're going to, I'm going to be talking with an activist uh, from the, actually the conservative side of the aisle who is doing her best to eliminate, to reform, to repeal, to get rid of the death penalty. I'll introduce my guest in a minute. Before I do that, I just want to remind you guys that Felony Friday is one of three shows that we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. We kick off every week with a show hosted by Mark Claire. That's every Monday. It is our longest running show, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement and hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have our show hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. It's called Electric Liberty Land. And you can get all three of these shows by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Just please subscribe. We do appreciate the support. This show is the 155th episode of Felony Friday. So the show notes will be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF155, and let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Hannah Cox. Hannah is the national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty. Hannah was previously the director of outreach for the Beacon Center of Tennessee, which is a free market think tank. And prior to that, she was director of development for the Tennessee Firearms Association and a policy advocate for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Hannah, welcome to Felony Friday. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And as we talked about in our pre-show chat, um, you're the second person, the second manager from uh, Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty to come on the show. Previously had on your predecessor, Mark Hyden, and uh, looking forward to bring you on to talk about really your journey towards what brought you to this position today. So I think it's, you know, this topic, the death penalty, it's controversial across the board. Conservatives, libertarians, liberals, I think. I don't know. I don't talk to many liberals about the death, the death penalty. I, I assume they're all against it, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of them are for it. But uh, I know that you said that you have sort of a, a story where you came from being very pro-death penalty and sort of evolving in your thinking. So I kind of wanted to start there. If you could tell us that story, maybe if there was something that happened or really what moved you along to, to change your perspective on the death penalty. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the death penalty continues to be a bit of a contentious issue because there's a lot of emotion in it. And I think that that's normal. I think when we're talking about matters of life and death, that it should be an emotionally charged issue. 
The problem with that, though, is I think many people, when they approach it, approach it how I initially did, which is without ever researching it. And so I grew up a uh, typical kind of Republican household, was very conservative, was uh, the daughter of a pastor, and everyone I knew was pro-death penalty. And I thought this was the, the way that you achieve justice in a society. I thought this was what was best for victims' families. Uh, and I think that, you know, I definitely tapped into that need for vengeance and to feel like we're doing something as a society. And... I never gave it much thought past that. I didn't know anyone in the criminal justice system or affected by it. And so it really wasn't until I was doing some work with NAMI, which you mentioned in my past, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And they asked me to work on a bill that was going to be surfacing in the Tennessee legislature seeking an exclusion from the death penalty for people with severe mental illness. So not even full repeal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, oh, I, I don't think I can do that. I'm really pro-death penalty. And they said, really? You know, even for people with mental illness, I, I was, you know, die hard. I was like, yes, mm-hmm. I'm very pro. Cannot do this. And they said, you know, you're such a limited government advocate. Have you, why? Have you looked into this? And, and the truth was I had not. So I uh, agreed to go home and, and do my due diligence and actually dig into it a bit. And I don't think my mind changed overnight. You know, I don't think it was this necessarily aha moment that I had. Mm -hmm. But I think that I found out several things that surprised me. The cost factors were surprising to me. The amount of innocence that had been found within the system was surprising to me. And certainly I began to realize very quickly that there were definite needs for protections for people with severe mental illness that were not currently in place. And so I initially began working on a very limited bill surrounding the death penalty. And as I continued working on that issue, and also as I was working on some other criminal justice reforms and other capacities to where I I finally hit a point where I thought, okay, this actually cannot be executed properly or where we know that it is efficient or being conducted fairly. And so I think it needs to go. And that has only strengthened over time as I found out more and more about it. So I, I wanted to ask you, Hannah, you mentioned that your father was a pastor growing up in the, you know, with a Christian faith, Christian background. I, I think it's interesting, and I've talked about this in the past. I had on Shane Claiborne. I don't know if you've heard about him, but he's a uh, anti-death penalty advocate um, coming from, um, I forget what uh, denomination is in the Christian faith, but you know, he talks about a lot the death penalty from the perspective of being a Christian, and I've always found it fascinating how... So many Christians just, without questioning it, like you yourself said, you didn't really question it, you just support it. Why do you think that is? I mean, do you think there's a reason why Christians really just, I mean, not across the board, but in general are really pro-death penalty? Yeah, well, I think to some extent, you know, you have actually back at what they're being taught in their churches and their denominations. So if you're being told by your leadership that this is okay and you're not being asked to really question it, then I think most people don't. And I think that's just sort of a a symptom in American politics across the board is that a lot of people are not really um, applying their own logic and thinking through things and instead of relying on other people to sort of tell them how they should feel about that, whether that's a pastor, whether that's a senator, or whether that's um, a close friend. So I think it does um, go back to that. I also think at the end of the day, you know, you can take the Bible in many different ways. There's people who can quote scripture at you to uh, back up the death penalty, and there's and there's just as many scriptures you can throw in to, to oppose the death penalty. And so I think at the end of the day, what that says to me is that if denominations can't even agree on this, then we shouldn't be using this to set policy, because I think that that's a, a, a fallible thing to rely on there. And for me, with my personal faith, when I really started questioning this a bit more, what I came down to, down to was that if I truly believed, um, as my faith teaches, that someone can be redeemed at any point in their life and that 
God can save someone no matter what they've done, then who are we as a, as a state, as a country, um, and especially as a church to cut short that time period that God might have to work in their lives. And that was really how my faith changed in, in seeing the death penalty. And so I think I had two things that shifted, right? I, I changed my mind from a policy standpoint, and then I also changed it from a faith standpoint, morality standpoint as well. That's, that's interesting. That's pretty similar to the way that I've grown to look at it in that, and it's not easy to look at it this way. I mean, you, somebody that commits a heinous crime, um, obviously there are times when, uh, you know, somebody is put on death row and charged and charged with a crime falsely, but let's say that you're a hundred percent sure somehow that, you know, that they committed this crime. They killed a bunch of people. They, they killed children or, or something like that. It's, it's hard to get to that point to think that this person deserves to live, but who are we to extinguish a life? Who are we to, um, to, to make that call. That's, I guess that's the way I look at it. That's really not something that's in our hands. I'm not saying you let that person go back into society at, at all, um, keep, them, keep them in prison. But uh, who, yeah, who's to say that God can't move in their life and have them have some sort of positive impact while being in prison in who knows what kind of way? Um, so that's kind of how I've evolved uh, looking at the death penalty. It's one thing to to change your view on the death penalty. It's another thing to take the position you're in, which is really, you know, leading the charge in activism um, in, in a conservative group. So what made you step up and uh, want to take that role? That's a great question. I had actually had the privilege of working around conservatives' concern about the death penalty at the state level in Tennessee while I was actually coordinating the effort on the severe mental illness bill. And uh, I remember the first time I heard from their state director, she announced her position and her title and the organization she was with. And I thought, huh, there's conservatives out there against the death penalty. You know, <laughs> who knew? And it was, it was such a uh, it gave me an opportunity. I think it was such a, uh, that was a light bulb where I recognized all of a sudden that, oh, okay, it's, it's okay to question this, to take this position. And there's others that are questioning this from a very uh, consistent philosophical position and not what I have been taught uh, growing up that it was only liberals who, you know, cared more about the offender than they did the victim. And, and it kind of helped me shift that in my mind. And so I've, al- I've always been really interested in the, mission of conservatives concern and thought it was a great approach and and really offered a way for people to uh, be consistent in their values and in their principles. I think that's what we offer to people. Uh, For me, one reason I was so passionate about wanting to take this on full time is I think that it's seen too often as an outlier. You know, we've seen this big criminal justice reform movement taking hold in the country, thank God. And we've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of bipartisanship in that and some really amazing things um, come about both at the state and hopefully the federal level this month. And having worked around that, having gotten to know some of the people who have seen their lives change, I've seen the hardened criminal who's now a Christian who runs a ministry in their hometown helping people. I think I'm tired of seeing death siloed as this um, outlier issue that shouldn't be involved in that discussion of criminal justice reform. And how do we really make sure that we have a system that is focused on restoration, that is focused on efficiency, that is actually focused on deterring crime? And right now, I think the death penalty is one of the biggest roadblocks to all of those things. Uh, And I think that once people are confronted with the facts, they'll they'll see that and change their minds on it. And so I was just very moved to use my voice and my position and background and connections to try to bring this into the conversation and and make it part of the mainstream discussion on criminal justice reform like I think it should be. Uh, And lastly, I'll just add, I think that for me, I'm very burdened uh, by the people who have been 
con uh, convicted wrongfully and who often don't have the socioeconomic um, means to defend themselves or to even work through an appellate process and really get justice. And so I feel very compelled to try to advocate for those people as well. And I think that when you start digging into the death penalty system, you quickly find that many of those who get caught up in this part of the system and who are sentenced or even tried um, typically have very traumatic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They're typically people that have been failed by the system and by their communities time and time and time again. And then when all that compounds and tragedy strikes, we use the death penalty as a way to get vengeance. And we don't actually fix the problem here, which is often right. mental illness, which is often abuse, which is often real trauma. And so I'm, I'm very burdened by that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, most of the time, people don't just come out of nowhere and commit heinous crimes. Of course, that, that does happen. And when that does happen, it's, it's a surprise. It's a shock. It's mainstream news. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of these, these times when there's you know, a homicide or some sort of violent crime, it's been building up. It's, it's based in really the trauma that that person uh, grew up in or you know, was surrounded by as they uh, were growing up in their community. So mm -hmm. time to look back and start solving some of those issues to stop getting to the point where, where people get, get so violent. And I think, I think we are making progress there as a, uh, as, as a society, but I, so. I know I had had Mark on before, obviously, but for people who didn't hear his interview, if you could just give the listeners like a little bit of a rundown, I know there's different state chapters of conservatives against the death penalty, but what is your role and what is the, uh, I guess the, the general role of conservatives against, against the death penalty in really pushing back and trying to change the system? Sure. So Conservatives Concerned is a nonprofit, and we work at both the uh, national and the state level to try to advance education initiatives and advocacy work that will help to just get the basic facts in front of people about the concerns we have from a conservative perspective on the death penalty. Uh, and namely, those are the cost issues, the innocence issues, um, the arbitrariness of the system, uh, the racial impact of the system, and the biases that are involved there. And then also, of course, the uh, mental health issues. So I think all of those are some of our top issues we typically discuss. Uh, I run the national effort. And so I am often speaking to members of the media, doing interviews, taking meetings with other thought leaders across the country. Uh, but, but then we're also working at various levels in the states to try to actually move um, repeal and see actual change come about. So we have multiple states that we're in, and we're involved at different levels in those states. So some states we have a chapter where um, people are working to help advance the message that we have and to do more outreach to people. In other areas, we've actually seen death penalty repeal bills moving, so we're a bit more organized and really getting involved with the grassroots at those levels to try to uh, do what we can to move the ball down the field. What, what's an example? Are there any states off the top of your head that have some death penalty reforms that are, that are coming down the pike? Yeah, so there's a couple really exciting things going on right now um, in conservative states. So we saw New Hampshire this year actually pass a piece of repeal legislation through two Republican controlled uh, chambers and had really strong bipartisan support. They uh, were vetoed by the governor uh, and then were only two votes shy of veto override majority. And so it was really close wow. to passing New Hampshire this year, which was exciting. And I think uh, given some of the changes in the midterms and how things are shaping up there, they've got a real chance to move a bill this year. And so we will certainly be there talking to the grassroots and, and advocating for why this is a good idea and a good policy and, um, and are very excited to kind of, you know, get on the ground there. Yeah. And then, Secondly, is, I'll add. Is the uh, governor of uh, sorry to interrupt? Is the governor of New Hampshire 
it's a new governor coming in, right? Or, no, it's the same uh, governor. It's Governor okay. Sidney, uh, and he is a Republican. And he, um, despite a lot of, of voices from the law enforcement community and, um, you know, like I said, bipartisan support and other, other mm-hmm. activists, he chose to veto it, which, um, you know, was a bit disappointing. They only have one person on death row in New Hampshire, and the person is actually there because they killed a cop. Um, the cop's partner has even spoken out against the death penalty and has said that this is a failed system, this is not what they would have wanted, mm-hmm. and they're wasting a lot of money that could be helping them actually um, give their police resources so they could solve more crimes. So uh, we're really hopeful that they could see a, a push this year, and we'll see how he responds this year. People have been known to change their mind on these things over time. So that will definitely be coming back around and we will be heavily involved there. Uh, we're also getting ready to launch a chapter in Louisiana, so we're not you know, working on any kind of legislation there or anything, but we are definitely uh, working to spread the word, and I think the, the Pope coming out against death penalty and really changing the Catholics' position on that this year will be very uh, motivating for many people, and I think there's a real appetite to hear more among conservatives in Louisiana right now. And then lastly, Utah. We're going to be very involved in Utah. They've seen a lot of organic um, Republican work to try to go ahead and move some bills in the past year or so and have a lot of uh, interest from Republican leaders there. So we'll be trying to get involved and, again, just do what we can to educate people in the communities about why this is something that they should pay attention to. I want to tell you guys about a new podcast, friend of the show, friend of Lions of Liberty, Rachel Kennerly. Uh, she has a, a new podcast that focuses on cannabis She brings on, much like Felony Friday, where I bring on people to share their story about their experience in the criminal justice system, Rachel brings on people to share their stories about how they've used cannabis to heal themselves, how they've used medicinal cannabis to find healing. The show is called Cannabis Heals Me. And on the show so far, um, she's interviewed a couple who has a child with epilepsy, using the cannabis to, to treat the epilepsy, someone with a traumatic brain injury, a lupus survivor, and a woman who has a medical condition referred to as suicide disease. Uh, they publish one episode per week. You can find the episodes wherever you find podcasts, or you can check out the website at CannabisHealsMe.com. All right, let's get back to today's show. In Utah, I mean, that's mostly, I mean, I don't know what percentage of the state is Mormon, but what's the Mormon view on the death penalty? Do you know offhand? It- yeah, I don't think I can speak for the church uh, yeah. since they haven't had anything like the, <laughs> like the Pope coming out and officially changing. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure I can okay. speak for well, that. When, when did the Pope come out and make that statement? Was that this year? You know, it was actually right after I started, so I like to take credit for it, actually. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Uh, it was about a month after I started, so that would have put us in about around August. Um, so it was a media flurry right around the time I got started. It was very exciting. Okay. I'll have to look into the uh, the Mormon view on the death penalty, because I would assume that would have a big impact on, on the way they move forward in, in Utah. But uh, Absolutely. I think you know you can never underestimate the, the weight that a church um, carries, but I also mm-hmm. think that when you're dealing with red states like Utah and others, they're very focused on their budgets. They're very focused on what they're doing with their resources. And at the end of the day, the death penalty is not an effective use of resources. We know that it wastes a, a, a mass amount of money. And we also know that we have really low clearance rates for crimes in this country. And, and the number one thing that police chiefs have said they need and would actually help deter crime is more resources. So I think that often when you're dealing with a policy like this, leaders are thinking about that perspective uh, a lot more than other things. 
I know that we've talked about this before, but if you could just go over again for people. So what is the reason, because it's kind of counterintuitive when you hear that the death penalty is more expensive than not putting someone to death. So what's the what's the reasoning for that? Yeah, and it's so funny because when you say that, people say, well, of course that's true because of the appeals process and they're there so long and that's why. And it's, mm-hmm. that's not why. Um, it actually is way more expensive because of the trial. So 70% of a death penalty uh, uh sorry, definitely cases costs are incurred at the trial level. And that's for a myriad of reasons. First and foremost, because the trial takes part in two places for a death penalty trial, you have a much longer process. So that's more hours for judges and prosecutors mm-hmm. and defense attorneys. You typically have more lawyers working on a death penalty case. It's a longer jury selection process. You're having to house them longer. You're typically paying to bring in more witnesses. Um, one fact that a lot of people don't know is that prosecutors are often paying the DNA testing labs for results, which is obviously problematic for many reasons, but also Mm -hmm. adds to the cost of the death penalty. Um, So all of that compounds, and we know that it is at least a million dollars more, and sometimes vastly more than that, depending on the state, more expensive than a case such as life in prison without parole. And when you look at the the cost studies that have been done, uh, I think North Carolina's is the one that really dug into this, but the trial process was actually four times more than the appellate process. And so it's actually not the appeals process that's costing more. Because if you think about it, they're paying to house people either way, whether they have life in prison without parole or the death penalty, and they're there right. for 30 years. Um, those costs are somewhat similar, although you do still pay a bit more for people to be on death row because you have more guards and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that adds up to it being vastly more expensive. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, so there was a recent report that came out from your organization talking about, I think it was from like 2000 until 2012, the change in red states, I guess with re- Republican governors and bills moving forward in those states. Um, could you go over, I can't remember, I read it, the methodology. It was a, what was it? The uh, it was a percentage? Well, I guess you know better than me. So, so, so how did you measure this change of, of support in right. in these red states? So what we were actually measuring was the number of Republican lawmakers sponsoring death penalty repeal bills. And what we saw when okay. we looked at that is it was almost non-existent. It was in the single digits every year up until 2012 or up through 2012. But then um, as we saw, and you know, Conservatives Concern did launch in 2013, so I like to think this played a bit of a part in it. But mm-hmm. starting in 2013, we saw those numbers start to more than double. And that trend has stayed consistent ever since. We have seen more and more lawmakers that are Republicans sponsoring or co-sponsoring bills to repeal the death penalty. And that's important because I think there's a big difference in a conservative speaking out about the death penalty versus someone who is elected as a Republican taking it on. Because what that says is that they feel they have the support of their constituents to do that. And so I think that's a real measure of where they feel the opinion is in their districts and what they think that people want. I think that's also um, something that becomes very apparent when you look at how death sentences are down in the country. They're down about 60% since the start of the new millennium. And so we've seen a really stark drop-off of juries that are actually sentencing people to death. And on top of that, um, you know, when you look at the numbers of where the death penalty trials are coming from, you're also seeing fewer and fewer of those to where we have only about 2% of counties now mm-hmm. that are bringing the majority of death penalty cases. And so it, we're seeing that most uh, DAs don't think this is a good use of their time. Most DAs don't think that this is uh, something that is really a good use of resources and are choosing against it. And it's really just a small number that are choosing to still pursue this. 
It's, it's interesting because it used to be that a DA, in order to get reelected, they had to show they were tough on crime and the death penalty was a way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess this is really a case of the populace, the citizens' view on this changing the, the way that uh, the politicians and, and the legislators operate, which is the way it's supposed to work, right? Right. Well, I think there's a real reckoning happening um, from the tough on crime narrative and policies of the past couple of decades where, you know, as much as you wanted to say these were tough on crime, and yes, you were quite punitive during those years, Mm -hmm. were they really tough on crime? Did we really see a drop in crime rates? Did we actually see communities Mm -hmm. becoming safer? And if the answer to that is no, then you're not being tough on crime. You're just spending a lot of money and locking people up for a long time. Um, to still have the same rates. You know, I'm based in Tennessee, so I'm really entrenched in our numbers here. But Tennessee Mm -hmm. has an incarceration rate that's 11% higher than the national average. We have a third of our jails overcrowded, another third on the brink. We spend um, a billion dollars a year on our criminal justice system. And we have a crime rate that's 30% higher than the national average. So at some point, you have to step back and recognize that what you've been doing is not working. And and I think that the reality is, you know, just system-wide as a whole, most people are going to get out. Very few people are not going to ever get out of jail. So we need to focus on making sure that they have a way of being um, led back into society where they can mm-hmm. be productive. And I think once people go down that road, it also helps it um, them open their eyes to other issues with long-term prisoners and what are we doing there and what got us here and what can we do to prevent um, more of those people from coming about in society, right? Let's try to think of ways that we can address root causes of crime before violent crime occurs so that we can mm-hmm. actually cut down on violence. Yeah, it's, it's really a public safety issue when it comes down to it. Um, obviously, from I'm a libertarian, my perspective, I don't want people locked in a cage for a nonviolent consensual transaction, be it you know, be, you know cannabis or cocaine or, or whatever. Not saying I'm in favor of anyone using any particular drug, but people should be allowed to put it in their body what they want to. And uh, that's the consequences they have to deal with and figure out how, how to live with that. But understanding that actions have consequences, and like, you're, like you were talking about, with this tough-on-crime narrative has really created, sort of led to this opioid crisis that we're seeing today. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of going down a different rabbit hole there. But uh, I think that's what's starting to wake people up. Um, people are starting to understand that if you look at the numbers of people addicted to heroin over the years, it hasn't gone down. Um, there hasn't been less overdoses. There's been a lot more. So um, it's it's sad that it's had to come to this, but I think it's I think we have reached a point, a tipping point here. And uh, we're seeing recently, of course, with the the First Step Act, which maybe by the time this airs, will have uh, <laughs> will have passed. I, I don't know. We'll we'll see. But. Uh, yeah, it's definitely it's an inter- interesting time, and I'm sure for you it, in uh, in your field, it's a uh, there's a lot of opportunity to make a uh, to make a positive impact. And I just want to ask you one or two more questions in closing. So, are there any cases right now? Are there any people on death row right now, high profile or maybe it's low profile that nobody's heard about that you know are really you know, compelling cases that people should should know of or should, uh, I don't know, somehow get involved with in order to raise awareness? Yeah, I think personally, um, you know, I like to look at this as a systematic issue. And I think that 
yes, there are many cases you could dig into. It's hard to know where to start. If you look at Texas, they have one in four people on their death row that was represented by a um, public defense attorney that was later disbarred or disciplined in some kind of way. There's so many people who aren't getting fair trials that it almost feels wrong to elevate one over the other. But what I would say to people is that, you know, you need to be paying attention to what your DA is doing. And I think for so long, people have given a pass to legislators and DAs and, and kind of not paid attention to the decision makers here. And you can have a lot of impact in, in making sure that you're questioning what people's approaches are here and, and are they thinking through these things and really uh, letting people know that it's something that people care about and that they want to make sure that we are um, conducting ourselves in our justice system in a way that is ethical and that is effective. And so I think that, you know, we really encourage people to dig in where they are locally. And I think your voice will always have the biggest impact where you are locally and with your local leaders. And so I think that's a great way for people to get involved. Um, and I think that as a whole, my other issue with um, kind of cherry picking cases within the death penalty system is that it's a systematic problem. And I think so often when people are confronted with the issues with the death penalty, they'll say things like, oh, I'm only for it in the worst of the worst cases, or I'm only for it when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's the person. But the problem with that is, is that's not how the system operates. So you can say you're only for it in these cases, but as a whole, this is a system that operates across the board. And there is no way that we can make sure there are no innocent people caught up in it. And there's no way that we can make sure it's only the worst of the worst, because it's very arbitrary who's deciding who gets this and who doesn't. Um, and so I think that people need to start viewing it in that capacity, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be something where you're saying that, um, you know, I think we meet, we, sorry, I can talk. We meet many people who are conservatives and libertarians who are against the death penalty, not based on their own personal moral code, but because of how it's working in practice. And I think that's what we're really trying to point people towards with conservatives concern. You know, I think many of us do think there's moral issues, but also, even if you, that doesn't tug your heartstrings or you don't have that draw, I think if you just look at how it's operating as a system, no matter how much you um, might stand behind it in principle, the practice of it is just completely off the rails. And so I think that's what we need to be calling attention to. Well, I will say first, you might have a future in politics because that was an excellent block and pivot on my question. There. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I mean, I, I agree with you and I definitely under, totally understand where you're coming from. It is a systematic problem. I guess the reason that I would, would bring that up and ask that question, because in or, sometimes in order to influence people and to bring people to a cause, just from an emotional standpoint, I know it's you don't want to you don't want to elevate a case and say one's greater than another, but <clears throat> and you know journal, journalists do a great job of this picking you know picking a case and going into the details of it and what went wrong, but uh, sometimes to to play on people's emotions in order to bring them to the cause it can help for that, but that's probably not your your role as a uh, as an well, activist. I'll throw out one for you. So I think one that's really. <laughs> kind of gotten under my skin recently is actually the latest death row exoneree um, out of Florida. And I actually wrote a recent article on him. His name is Aguirre Clemente. And okay. if you start digging into that case and all the things that went wrong there, it will make your blood boil when you realize why some of these wrongful convictions are happening and how easily it can happen to someone if they don't have the means to afford a good attorney. Uh, and this guy served, you know, 14, 15 years before he was exonerated simply because he couldn't get some DNA tested, essentially, at wow. the end of the day. Um, and had just prosecutors that totally overlooked who most likely uh, is now the main suspect for actually being guilty. Uh, but she, you know, wasn't as good of a narrative. And so they went with this other guy who was an immigrant 
immigrant and who, you know, didn't have the same kind of means. And I just think you see that happen so frequently with our exonerees. And if you see this many exonerees, you know, we have one person exonerated for every 10 executions. We know there's more of them on death rows that are waiting to be found innocent. So I think that actually is something good for people to look into. Yeah, I start every show by saying we have a broken criminal justice system. So that means it's broken at every level, broken from people sitting on death row all the way down. Um, so that's that's important mm-hmm. to remember that. Um, you know, I, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time. But before I let you go, if you could just tell my listeners where they can learn more about conservatives, conservatives about the death penalty, where they can uh, pitch in or, or help in, in any way. Absolutely. So they you can go to conservativesconcern.org. Uh, there's a lot of information on our website. They can contact us. They can shoot me an email. My email's on there. I'd love to know if you're in a local state and you want to get more plugged in and involved. We're happy to get you set up and help you connect with existing chapters or even help you launch your own. Um, and so that's a great way to get informed on what we're doing. They can also find us on social media at CCATDP on Twitter and Facebook. And so that's a great way to keep up with local news too. All right, Hannah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me and for all the work you're doing. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye now. Bye. Do you want a libertarian message in your inbox every single day for the next year? Do you want philosophical ammo for your next Facebook debate, inspiration for those days when freedom feels out of reach, or just a jump-off point for teaching liberty through music? Nikki P. from the Sounds of Liberty podcast has joined up with friends Luke Tatum of the Culture of Peace podcast and Sherry Voluntary. They've compiled a list of 365 liberty-themed songs. They've done the legwork. They've pontificated on some of the greatest messages music has to offer the liberty movement every day for the next year. You'll get a new song with historical details, lyrical highlights, links, and libertarian analysis to dazzle and educate. So in order to get in this program, you got to join by December 31st. And you're going to do that by going to soundslikelibertypodcast.com slash 365. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview today with Hannah Cox. And this is a very, very important topic, obviously. We're talking about the death penalty, capital punishment. Somebody's life is on the line. Cannot understate that. And, you know, I think the work that conservatives against the death penalty, the work that they're doing is so important and does not get the really the credit that it's due. So I wanted to bring Hannah on, give her a chance to share why she's so passionate about it, how she found her way um, into this role, which I think is just, uh, it's it's so critical. And I thought it was really interesting, her backstory coming from, you know, her being the daughter of a pastor and really evolving from that role. It's always so interesting to me to look at the death penalty from the aspect of Christianity and, you know, as someone who is a Christian and used to be in favor of the death penalty, I'm just trying to understand better so I can help to bring more Christians to be against the death penalty. I'm trying to understand better why so many Christians favor the death penalty and really don't question it. I really respected and uh, I was happy to get Hannah's views, especially that aspect of it. And it's it's important. You know, I've talked about... And uh, we'll talk about in the future here, as we get closer to the end of 2018, the progress that has been made within the criminal justice system. 
uh, especially with ha- what's happening with the first step the first step act with the house and senate approving that it's fantastic but there's progress other places there's there's progress in these states individual states the way that they're viewing the death penalty and less and less people are being put to death by the government and that is a very good thing because as you know as I've talked about on this show so much this is a flawed system we live in we don't have to look any farther than the amount of people who were exonerated by DNA evidence. The system is broken. People who are innocent are in prison. There's, there's no secret. That's a fact. So are you going to trust a system that puts innocent people in prison, habitually puts innocent people in prison, overcharges people? You're going to trust that same system to decide who lives and who dies? I think that's insanity. I think that's crazy. And I would challenge you to rethink your opinion. So that's all I have to say about that today. And you know, I really am just going to close the show. I just want to wish all the listeners out there a Merry Christmas. And you know, speaking of Christmas, speaking of the holidays, we do have a holiday special right now with our Patreon group, our Lions Pride. Uh, if you join the Lions Pride, if you join the Lions Pride today through the end of December, you will be entered, or not entered, you'll get it. So if you join for $10, you will get our our uh, beanie. Our beanie hat has our Lions of Liberty uh, logo on the front. That's a free additional thing you get for joining at $10. You get all the other stuff you would normally get at $10. If you join at $15 and up to $25, you get our Lions of Liberty sweatshirt, hooded, zip-up, Sweatshirt. We just came out with it. It's in our Lions of Liberty store. Be sure to check that out. If you join for 15 and up, you'll get that in addition to all the other perks. So please consider doing that. And um, really, the, the beanie is only available either to people already in the Pride. We're going to make that just an exclusive link available to them. Or to people who are joining the Pride uh, right now for, for $10. So think about doing that. Uh, We appreciate your support, especially in this tumultuous time. We're figuring out how to navigate our way around this whole uh, Patreon uh, fiasco with uh, Sargon of Akkad. Did I say that right? With what's going on there with that guy. So yeah, please go to patreon.com slash lines of liberty to get that deal. And You'll also get access to our Facebook group, and you can give us feedback and all that other our private Facebook fi, private Facebook Facebook group. I can't talk anymore. I've done a lot of podcasting today. Uh, you'll get access to that, and uh, we you know we're in that group and getting ideas for shows and bouncing questions off of uh, the members there. So that's a great resource for us as hosts, and we really enjoy interacting with the private members. So that's all I got, guys. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. I will talk to you soon. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.